this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 26, our discussion of emerging insights about the best practices for using NITs in clinical trials. This conversation starts with me clarifying a statistical issue, which is the meaning of stacked. Based on my statistical background, I thought of stacked as a stepwise approach, but this is stacking multiple metrics to score individuals. Luis points out that that kind of stacking can improve the ability for results to be used in a diverse population, since stacks might be different for women versus men or other variables. As the discussion continues, the group agrees that a combination of cost, convenience, and consistency issues mandate relatively rapid development of a standard list of biomarkers that researchers can use and evaluators can accept. Conversation shifts to strategies for selecting the test to use, and finally, the question of whether using multiple tests will serve to magnify or moderate the statistical error associated with any individual assessment. This conversation based on high-profile talks Quentin Anstey gave to recent events, represents leading-edge thinking about the use of NITs in clinical trials. All of us found the entire discussion challenging and exhilarating, and I hope you do too. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Stephen Harrison. This podcast is terrific because it allows us to bring brilliant minds like you onto this to generate provocative conversation that may, at the end of the day, lead to something that changes the field. First of all, yes, I agree. And part of that's because we start with people like you, Stephen, and you are to, to kick that around. So we've got plenty of really fantastic minds to do that. Quentin, I have a question coming out of my more statistical place. When we say stacked, are we talking fundamentally about what you would find in a stepwise regression, where the third measure might not be the third best independent measure, but it might be the measure that does the best job of predicting what's left after you get the first two out of play. Quentin Anstey. So that's one way of looking at it. That wasn't quite the way I was meaning it. I'm talking about commonality in the same individuals. So the idea that if you reach threshold X in, let's say, ALT, and then also attain threshold Y in PDFF, each of these gives you a greater degree of confidence that you're going to meet your regulatory endpoint. And so the concept is to look at them that way. This is speculative, Roger. And, you know, we, we, as Stephen said, we need to tease this apart and we have the tools to do that. But the, your point then is that what we're, what we're doing when we stack data is we're scoring individuals. We're not, do, we're not doing probabilities. We're either saying on that person, yes or no. And the, and the stacking of the variables is how we get to the yeah. yes or the no. Louise Campbell. I think there's a difference there as well in the context that this stacking allows you to then go into the equity and diversity of the populations. And not all three markers might be the same in a Hispanic community, for example. So by having better population size in minority populations, we might drive out different data because I think having used hepatitis C as an analogy, we very much used the predictive value of what we could get to be able to achieve motivation to carry on and that education. So working it backwards, getting that stacking system, getting something that we know can achieve or show sustainability really acts as a motivation. I would argue that all of these markers have to be something that we can use in the real world as well so that we can take them out of the clinical trial space into the real care where these drugs are going to be delivered in the future. But we might find differences within the populations with that stacking system. Thoughts about that? I mean, Louise, that kind of feels a little bit... Now you're talking about needing to be able to score different sets of individuals different ways or stack different variables. I'm not putting this exactly right, but I think that's kind of what I'm hearing. Well, I suppose even 
even simpler than that. When you break down the stacking system to see, so say ALT drop, Fibroscan drop, and ELF dropped, and there was different section cohorts. Women might have dropped better than men. Is that a bigger indication, for example, in females? What was the age? What was the... You can tease out the data afterwards, but I suppose we don't have mass trials of different ethnic populations. And I know the FDA are trying to address that with more inclusion. That's where I'm taking it eventually, that you could argue that it might be AST that drops in a particular community rather than ALT being their third or fourth factor. The data's not been drilled down yet, but the discussion is exciting to think that it could be. Jörn Schattenberg. Gender aspects are clearly very exciting, Louise. That's, you know, well captured in all these trials. I agree that the diversity and in terms of ethnicities is not quite there yet. I mean, there's going to be a lot of questions around, we use different cutoffs for men and women, the percent change, should it be the same? And then does that hold true for all the three biomarkers you named? And we'll see a lot of them improve, maybe two improve, one doesn't or not sustained. So there's a lot of questions, as Stephen suggested, I think these more granular analyses. I think we're in the position to do them in the larger phase two trials. Yeah, and I think in, even in the phase three, just looking at, at Madrigal's Maestro Nash, I mean, every biomarker that we could think of about has been done to include serum to run ELF, Pro-C3, CT1 in a subset, MR elastography, PDFF. Of course, FIB4 can be calculated off of that. Fibroscan was done. So that's kind of the gold standard phase three trial where you've got histology, you've got multiple NITs that could be appropriately mined to inform the field coming up behind. So, so you're absolutely right, Stephen. I mean, I pulled together this table looking at all the different NITs that have been used in all the phase two, phase three studies that have come out so far. And some of those madrigal studies are are some of the best in terms of the breadth of biomarkers they've captured, which really are going to be an immense resource, both in terms of therapeutics, but also in terms of improving the biomarker endpoint space. Uh, I mean, my hat's off to you and them for what you've done to put those together. The downside of that, of course, is the cost, right? And that's one of the, a whole nother discussion about the cost of phase two and phase three trials in NASH drug development. They're inordinately expensive. And I think the cost of a trial today married with the uncertainty about endpoint has led to reduced interest in the field of NASH in general. And, you know, venture capital coming into the field, you see stock prices going down. I think we have to To your point, we have to find a stable plateau where we don't need to be on fishing expeditions. We need to be looking at these combinations of biomarkers. We don't need to do more. We don't need to do less. We can fix the price at a trial. And I think once we have some positive results, we get some a drug or multiple drugs approved, the pendulum will swing back and we'll be on the road again uh, looking at combination therapy. If we can get this NIT menu set, then I think that would bode well for the future of drug development in NASH. And so we have our homework cut out for us because I think we need to mine the data that's been generated uh, from those sponsors that have been willing to do the NITs. And hopefully those same sponsors would be willing to share that data and let us analyze it and come up with the right number and and the right thresholds and the right sustainability and the stacking that we've talked about today. Those are all new concepts that we haven't even discussed, you know, in plenary session before. We're having our own little mini AASLD and easel. It's got to start with some thought and, you know, kicking the tires on it. And I I think this is a really helpful discussion in that respect, actually. Let me maybe ask Jorn, we've talked about 
a couple of these NITs. Are there any that we've missed that you think are worthy of, of discussion? Uh, maybe MR elastography, MEFIB, MAST, FAST, Agile 3, Agile 4. Should we include those in this conversation as well, do you think? Good point, Stephen. I think some of them you're mentioning are compound scores already, combining an MRE with uh, blood-based biomarkers, giving a single number. It would be interesting to see if they outperform the staggered approaches, Quentin, and you just discussed here. Uh, so I think those are not necessarily the ones you want to compare them to. Agree that the MRE, uh, Quentin referred to, to, to these as a physical, I guess, biomarker are worth to be explored here. And one we haven't done, and that hasn't been, we haven't discussed, and that hasn't been done so frequently is obviously the liver multi-scan. And maybe some of the ones that as a single standalone marker like the M30 didn't do so well. But if we think to a combination score, the MAC3, where I think M30 is in there in Quentin, we looked at that in the, in the Litmus Consortium. Actually, that was a pretty good marker. So you can throw in some of those that has been traditionally a little weaker and, and par- pair them. And I think then they can still have value. So you brought up an interesting point and one that adds a level of complexity to what Quentin and I were discussing, and that is those combination biomarkers that already exist, looking at those in comparison to a staggered approach as well. So in other words, if you took a FAST or an Agile 3 or an Agile 4 or a MEFIB or a MAST, and you looked at that in comparison to if your ALT dropped, plus you had a fiber scan drop, plus you had a drop in L4 or something else, that might be a little bit different than just changing FAST, for instance, which does include a change in KPA and AST, but it doesn't get to the third biomarker that you mentioned, Quentin. So this is something to think about because the moment we build, we bake them into an algorithm or in, into a formula like FAST or MAST or whatever, within that formula, you are actually prioritizing some of the signals over others. So, you know, FAST is heavily weighted towards AST, for example, MAST more towards the MRI PDFF. So the moment you do that, you're already making the algorithm make judgments for you. It'll be really interesting to look at this head to head. My suspicion is if you set up a robust threshold for each one on its own, it then puts us in the driving seat about how we actually interpret the change rather than it putting it into this formulaic black box. So that, that's my gut feeling on it, but this needs to be tested and, and looked at. Yeah, I agree. This has been a, a fascinating conversation, Quentin. Thank you for bringing it up. There's a lot of lot of angles to this I haven't ever thought about. Quentin and Jorn, you made some great points, and Louise as well. I think we uh, we have some ideas to take back uh, to the drawing board with. Roger, what are your... Uh, what are your thoughts? You're kind of way out of my zone here. But one of the questions I do have, if you go back to the history of how some of the composite scores were developed, right? We, we've talked on the podcast and we've seen in other places. how Some of these scores were developed knowledgeably and others were, let's just say, less so. For example, some of the histopathological measures we got, not because we knew what they represented, but because we could get people to agree on them. So I'm wondering how robust we feel each of these individual measures is for the test that we're going to apply to it. Because if you start stacking things, then you have to have a certain amount of faith that everything you're going to stack is going to, you know exactly what it's going to do. And what it's going to do is what you want. Now, maybe, in fact, everything we've got is that good. Listening to this conversation, you would think a lot of it is. It's just the, the one curiosity I've got, Stephen, is that if you start stacking things and, and each thing you stack is in some way variable, it varies from the target you're trying to get to, that's the kind of error that's going to compound really quickly and make problems. So I don't know, just a question. So I think that's 
quite an interesting one. It depends how you combine, how you stack, as you say, Roger. The counter argument is each test has an error bar associated with it. But if you believe that there is somewhere underneath it all a ground truth, the actual correct answer, each of the tests, biomarkers one considers is an approximation to that ground truth. Theoretically, if you, as long as you have enough patience and power is another question here, as you stack, you would, you would actually focus in on the ground truth. So rather than amplifying the error, you'd actually have a commonality where you have increasing confidence that you're attaining the ground truth. That would be my interpretation of it. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Louise and Rachel Zayas conducting interviews and summarizing key presentations from the Fifth Global Nash Congress while you and I ask questions. I promise to do my best to conserve my voice. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.